Hey, thank you for listening to the Learning to Lead podcast. I'm Paul Doherty, and today I have something super special for you. I had the opportunity recently to interview Bishop T.D. Jakes about his new book, Soar. And his book has impacted my life. I read it cover to cover. It's incredible. And so I know you're going to love this interview. It was full of wisdom, full of power. There's so much uh, to learn from this podcast that I really felt like we needed to break it into three separate episodes. And so this first episode we're going to talk about is really about being fruitful instead of just being famous and how Bishop Jake shares his story, how he asked God not to become famous, but to become effective at what he does and with his family and with his ministry and business. And so I know you're going to get a ton out of it. So let's jump right into it again. Thanks for listening. And here's the first part of our interview on being fruitful instead of being famous. Check it out. How's everybody? Woo! You miss me too. <laughs> How amazing. Wow. <laughs> it has been a long time, Tulsa. What's up? <laughs> we love you. Tulsa loves you. Yeah, I see. I see. <laughs> Amazing. Bishop, first of all, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. I never, yeah, I'm still, this feel. I'm like, pinch me. This doesn't feel real that you are here. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a dream. I've admired you for so long, and you, you shared this on the drive here. You remember coming, I was a little boy. Mm-hmm. And he grew up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who to shake hands with at the airport. I was like, you know, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you, you spoke to my soul. Every time you came, you ignited something inside me, and your voice, your words, just your anointing and what God uses you to do, set people free and cause people to rise up and become who God's called them to be. Yeah, how many of y'all can relate to that? Your life has been shaped and impacted by his voice and his words. And I'll never forget one of the most impactful moments in my life. Really, I felt a calling in 2004, you came. We were at the Maybe Center and packed out auditorium like tonight and you spoke on Hemotions, one of your books at that time. You shared about the attack, the enemy is attacking the man. I remember coming down to that altar call just crying, but you've, set, you've helped so many people get set free, and we're just so honored to have you here. I, I don't even know what to say, but I know you've been preaching all weekend. Thank you for coming on a Sunday night after you've preached in your own church. Not a problem. And you've got a brand new book out. Before we jump into this book, just for those that are new, how many of y'all have never heard Bishop T.D. Jakes speak before? Raise your hands. You've never heard him speak live? Uh, Raise your hands. Wow. Would you just maybe kind of introduce yourself to some of these people here that are are new to your story, new to you? Where should I begin? (laughs) Uh, I think it is important when you look at a person 
that you don't think that their story begins when their ministry did. Mm. Because the ministry is what you do and Thomas is who I am. And, and I think it is who you are that informs what you do. It, it gives you uniqueness to what you do. So my mother was a school teacher and uh, she did other things. She was uh, equal employment opportunities representative for the state of West Virginia, but most of my childhood, she was a school teacher. Uh, my father <laughs> ran a janitorial service. Uh, I talk about him quite a bit in the book. And what he taught me uh, when he started a business with a mop and a bucket and ended up with 52 employees back in the 60s. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, he was relentless. We, we grew up in a faith-based home, but not extremely so, just mildly so. Uh, I probably was the one that gravitated more into being involved in church than most of my family. I thought that I was called to music ministry. Uh, I thought that by myself. Uh, <laughs> I started playing for the choir when I was 11 years old, and I had this, these visions of grandeur of turning into Andre Crouch or somebody Come at the on. time, you know, would have been nice. Uh, Walter Hawkins or somebody like that. But uh, it's funny how you could have interest and admiration for something, but purpose somewhere else. Mm. And uh, I noticed that when I would put my choir up to sing, that people got more blessed off of the introduction than they did off of the choir. <laughs> Duh. So, but that isn't what, I really had an encounter with God as a teenager uh, where he called me to preach and I was terrified that nobody would believe that I was called to preach, that I was too young to preach. Um, most of the preachers in my era at that time were older men and I had no point of reference for young people called to ministry. Wow. And uh, it was really horrific for me to think that I would go out there and nobody would believe. And God dropped me over into Jeremiah chapter one and convinced me I wasn't the first young person who felt ill-equipped for the ministry. Wow. Out of that, my ministry was born and uh, I started into ministry uh, at 19. Uh, after a brief <clears throat> non-spiritual sabbatical in nightclubs and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, I started in the ministry at 19. Uh, I got married, uh, I started pastoring when I was 22. Wow. I got married when I was 24. I was on national television at 30. Uh, my life was uh, so much more than what I would have ever expected. I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia. There are about 40,000 people in Charleston. Wow. So I had no idea. Uh, when I hear people today talking about being big, you know, I, I, I had no concept of that. The, the largest church in our city would seat a thousand people. Wow. And uh, that was First Baptist. And uh, most churches in our city were around 200, 100 seaters. So I had no concept of big. I never wanted to be uh, famous. I prayed to be effective. Wow. Yeah, I prayed to be effective. And you yeah. were, and you are. <laughs> you know, I, Paul, I found out that if you are effective, effective will bring fame. Wow. Uh, fame is not anything to be, uh, fame is not anything to aspire toward. It is something that you endure. Yeah, it's something that you endure. Wow. Fame robs you of something that money cannot buy. Normalcy. 
privacy, uh, seclusion, which is a healthy part of mental health, to be able to have sabbaticals away from crowds. Even Jesus escaped crowds at times to renew himself. So to all of you that, are, that may be out there thinking, you know, God make me famous, change that prayer today. Uh, it's far better to be effective. And I tell people all the time, everybody famous isn't great, and everybody great isn't famous. It's mm. really good. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. You have, you've spoken into presidents' lives, you've been on CNN, Fox News, you've been all over. I'll never forget listening to the song that Kirk Franklin had you do. Uh, I think it was 12 years ago, and yeah. he calls you, and he's trying to figure out, you know, and you're speaking to him, and honestly, that song made me cry. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I remember the song. How many of y'all remember that song? 9-11. Yeah. 9-1-1. I, uh, so Kirk calls me up. He's actually my neighbor now. He lives about five houses down from me. Uh, at the time, there was a little bit more distance between our houses, but he calls me up and asks me, would I come to the studio and lay down some tracks with him? And, uh, and Kirk is like, it's right after Stomp, and, and he's, you know, jumping over chairs and furniture, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I put on these leather pants to put me in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, if you're gonna be here with Kirk Franklin, and I'm old enough to be his father, I have to kind of, I have to kind of, you know, Breathe in some Jimi Hendrix or something. I don't know. Two, <laughs> two, Tupac, summon somebody. I don't know. But uh, we we laid down those tracks and uh, almost extemporaneously, uh, we did almost no retakes on it. Wow! And uh, it just happened almost magically in the studio. <laughs> I still remember that line: anthrax, terrorist attacks. Mm -hmm. But hold on, I'm not done yet. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, and you yeah. come in. <laughs> I'm still amazed that you're up here. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Bishop, you talked about the importance, just what you shared. First off, let's talk about this book because you, so much of what you're sharing is in this book. How many of y'all have gotten the sore yet? If you haven't gotten it, tonight's your night to get it because you're gonna want it. And I read it cover to cover in four days. I was so excited when you were coming and I, I got in the book. But this book inspires me. It's so different than any of your books. Absolutely. You've written a lot of great ministry books, books that help people spiritually. This book's different. Yeah. Talk about what inspired you to write something in a different genre. I'm different. You know, Come on. I'm, I'm different. I've had a different set of experiences. I've sat at the intersection of, of uh, the faith movement, the, the church, and, and entertainment with television, producing movies and films and done business with people of all walks of life in a way that most ministers have not. So I get a pretty panoramic view of the holistic experience of socialization because I have friends who are homeless and I have friends who are presidents. You get a pretty broad view of human experience. I've traveled all over the world I've sat with 10 heads of state, three living presidents. I've been in the back room when things were tough. I've uh, been in Katrina when they were pulling dead bodies out of Katrina. I've seen, I've been on death row when people were about to be executed. You can't have that many experiences and, be, <clears throat> and then be myopic in terms of your vision. Wow. You, you, you can't do that. You can't. The greatest thing to me that God can give you is exposure. 
and exposure changes the way you think. We think what we think and the way we think about whatever it is we think based on the exposure we've had. And once you're exposed to more, it changes the way you think about a lot of things. Yeah. When the only way you are exposed is through the media, there is a certain flavor that comes in the water based on the media you're exposed to. And because I work in media and in faith, I get to see both sides of the world. I wrote this book uh, about entrepreneurship because I listen at the debate our country is having. Mm. I listen at the frustration of the Rust Belt states. I listen at uh, middle America feeling like they're left out of the narrative. Uh, I grew up in West Virginia where the coal mine shut down. Uh, I remember Birmingham Steel and Pittsburgh Steel, and I remember when Dayton and Pennsylvania were all booming and Union Carbide was up and, and blue-collar workers could get a great job and make a great living. I listen at what they said. I listen at what the inner city is screaming from, from Harlem to Watts to uh, south side of Chicago. Uh, they're actually saying the same thing. I don't know why they're at odds with each other. They're all frustrated about the same thing. The lack of opportunities, uh, the lack of seeing a future, uh, almost like rats trapped in a box. We have started gnawing at each other. Uh, we have forgotten what made America great. Wow. We have forgotten what made America great. It's not the big, yeah, amen. <clears throat> It's not the big Fortune 500 companies that, that move their businesses in and out based on taxes and whatnot. They hire about 30% of the, of the workforce in America. 70% of Americans or higher uh, work for small businesses. This country was built on the backs of people who were entrepreneurial, who were relentless, yeah. who had a vision for themselves, who rose up out of the dust and the ashes of obscurity and decided that they had a dream for themselves and their family and they fought to make it happen. So good. Yeah. And then I owed it to our children, your generation, and a little bit younger than you, the millennials in particular, because we told them a story that didn't happen. Wow. We told them a story that was true when we said it, but by the time they'd attained it, it wasn't true anymore. We wow. told them that if you go to school and you get a good education, you're gonna come out, there's gonna be a job waiting for you. Come on. And to their credit, they went to school and they got a good education. And when they got out of school, they had a great uh, bill waiting on them yeah, with, with no jobs. And now they're back on their mother's couch, uh, eating Kellogg's cornflakes at 12 o'clock noon. Uh, try, trying to figure, uh, what, do, what do I do with myself? Yeah. And I wrote this book to say that if you didn't get a good job, you have to create a good job. Come on. Yeah, you have That's to it. create a job. Yeah. You have to carve out a niche in the earth for yourself and be creative. You must realize that we were created by a creator who created us in his likeness and in his image. And if our creator is a creator, then I have to be creative. Somewhere down inside of every single solitary person in this room is creativity, whether you tap into it or not. We were not meant to follow a marching band and follow it behind other people's creativity and not discover our own. You have creativity. You have passion and you have purpose and giving people the freedom and the wherewithal to, to build that. I suddenly realized when I sat down to write this book that 
Uh, everything I ever experienced, I had to build from the ground up. I never inherited anything. I mean, my father gave me a watch, and, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my parents weren't so much into what they left to you, but they were masterful at what they left in you. Yeah. They were masterful yeah. at what they left in you. I love what you say about that in the book, too, about your mother yeah. and your father, what they taught you. Yeah. I know you're going to keep going. I just had no, to say No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, no. Well, <laughs> this chair is so loaded, it's about to pop. My father is sitting here. My mother is wow. sitting here. Both of my grandmothers are sitting here. All of my ancestors, right up to the ones that got off the boat from slavery, are here. Wow. And then back in Nigeria, where I am rooted from, from the Igbo tribe, that all of my ancestors are sitting in this chair. My mother used to say, when you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. So when I start talking about my parents, I grew up at a time that your heroes were people within your reach and, and the people who mentored you were in your neighborhood. They weren't necessarily uh, your heroes because they were hip hop artists or because they threw a football or because uh, they could do golf well. They were, they were blue collar people who worked double shifts and got off late and fed their families and fed the dog and took the trash out and taught you how to be a man, how to stand for something, go after something, be something, do something with your life. And so I know it sounds a little bit old school, but it's important. Yes. Because we as a people in this country in many ways have lost our way. We, we're in a fog of confusion. And it's not really our fault. Because I've worked in media, I realize we are manipulated by media. Wow. For ratings, for profit margins. We, we, there is an argument that didn't start on the sidewalks in this country. It started in the producers' rooms of press booths who pitted us to fight each other by showing us certain images and ideas as if it were the truth when it was only a truth and we walked away with a lopsided view of the world. Yeah. And they did it all for money. Yeah. They did it all for money. They do it all for ratings because, because good news doesn't sell, it doesn't drive up ratings. Altercations drives up ratings. Ratings drives up the fees you can charge for advertisement. Advertisement makes more money. And so the people that we see fighting with the POV, a point of view, on television are often hired to fight. Wow. I don't wanna, I don't wanna Oh no, this mind. is good, this is deep. Because it's changing people's minds. They, they are hired to fight, and they get, when they get through fighting on camera, they go to lunch, and we go out and shoot each other. Wow. So... It's damaging. I, I wrote the book to call us back to our God-given gifts and talents to building our own dreams. You know, I, I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, maybe because I am, but uh, I grew up when you ate something, you knew what you were eating. You know, a biscuit was really a biscuit because <laughs> grandma knew what she put in the biscuit. Today, it looks like a biscuit, it smells like a biscuit, but you don't know what in the world is in the biscuit. <laughs> you know, uh, to, that is much like uh, our world today. If you don't build it, you don't know what's in it. Wow. And so a lot of people are afraid to build from the ground up because we are 
shown instant success. Yes. Overnight wonders. Yes. Somebody put something on YouTube and they exploded and now they're famous. And then we got people who are famous for being famous. <laughs> it used to be you were famous because you, were, you did something. Now you're just famous. You're just famous. <laughs> Lord God. And, and we got everybody who wants to walk around and just be famous. But, but the first thing God said wasn't be famous, it was be fruitful. Right. Be fruitful. Yes. And if being fruitful makes you famous, then that's okay. But don't, don't set out to, to uh, have the moraine and have no lemon up under it, you know, yeah. you know uh, crust and no cobbler. You, you, you want to be able to do something with your life that matters and to model that to your children and to your children's children in case they are thrown into a situation that nothing magical happens. This is a very practical, pragmatic book. It is not full of fluff. And I didn't write, this is gonna get me in trouble. I didn't write it like preachers write these kind of books because they make me sick. Say it. All they do is tell you, spin around, God is gonna bless you. Uh, we're coming alive in 2005. It's gonna get fixed in 2006. Everybody's going to heaven in 2007. Or stuff like, the wealth of the unjust is laid up for the just. That's good, but how do I pull it down? That's good. That's what's needed right now. Yeah, how do I pull it down? Teach me how. How do I get it now? So Sunday morning inspiration leads to Monday morning frustration. Wow. If inspiration doesn't have information in it. So good. Then after a while, people just say, oh, that doesn't work, and they walk away. Let me interject one more thing. Yes. And then we'll go into where you want to go. I got tired of people coming up in prayer lines asking for prayer for stuff that God doesn't do. Talk about it. We have gotten so away from what God does. We don't ask God to do God stuff. Yeah. We ask God to do human stuff. If you got a problem that a check will fix, you don't need to ask God to do it. God doesn't write checks. Right. He doesn't write checks. Men write checks. Right. Men pay bills. So I got people coming up praying, you know, praying that I'll get a house or praying that my mortgage will get caught up or praying that my car doesn't go to foreclosure. That's not stuff you bother heaven with. Right. You, you see, let me, let me explain it this way. God has never made a table. I see these tables up here. Yeah. God has never made a table. He's never made a chair. Not one time in all of the ages has God ever made a table or a chair. Not once. God makes trees. And once he's made the tree, he's through with it. It's up to you to make the table and chair. Come on. Talk about it. You understand what I'm yes. saying? Yes. And we are asking God to do man stuff. Wow. If you want God to do something, ask him to part the Red Sea. <laughs> ask him to turn water into wine. Yeah. Ask him to raise the dead. You know, ask God to heal something that's incurable. Ask God to do stuff that gets God started. Don't ask God to do stuff you could ask your Uncle Willie for. Yeah. 
Because when you bring God down to a human level, there's nobody left to handle the God stuff that only God can do. There's nobody to stop hurricanes and tornadoes. There's nobody to stop bombs coming from North Korea. There's nobody who's got a divine hand that can reach down and do something supernatural that we cannot do because we have brought God down to Santa Claus. Wow, that's good. So I didn't take the approach that the church is accustomed to. I talk about corporate structures. I talk about building a corporate structure for your vision. I talk about whether it's a not-for-profit or for-profit and the legalities and the complications between the two. I talk about do you hire family or not to hire family? What happens when you do hire family? I what remember that you, chapter. You remember that? It was intense. It was intense, Good. yeah. Because but you, you talk about working with your family. Working with your own family. What you gain, what you lose. There are, there are assets and liabilities. If you bring your wife to work, there are assets and liabilities to doing that. <laughs> it's one thing to have a, fam a problem at the house, it's another thing to have a problem at work, and it's another thing to have a problem in both places. Yeah. That neither of you get the cool down period to recalibrate. So making those kinds of decisions and choices, I talk about not quitting your job and jumping into some crazy pursuit, but gradually testing the waters. The, the, I, I talk about serving what you would like to be because the anointing you respect is the anointing you receive. That's good. And a lot of times, doing a particular type of job is not what you imagined it to be. And so to serve somebody who's doing what you would like to do can cause you to have a more realistic perspective as to whether I really want to do this or not. Yeah. That's so good. You understand what I'm yes, saying? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I wanted to open up a restaurant. I love to feed people. See? I love to feed people. I wanted to open up a restaurant. As a kid, I wanted to open up a restaurant. All of my life, I said, there's going to be a damn go open up a restaurant. But when I got with some friends who run restaurants, and I saw how much work and time it consumes and how you can't leave the restaurant, because they're going to either steal from the cash register or throw food out the back door, that you've got to have somebody on 24 hours a day almost protecting the restaurant. I thought, this is a good theory, but everything that's a great theory is not a great reality. So we talk about that in the book. We talk about business. We talk about some very practical, what do you do when you have the vision, but you don't have the money? Yeah. Because the leading cause is to people to go out of business is not having access to capital, okay, economic resources. And the second thing is not having access to mentoring human resources. And between those two things, I begin to talk about how to build it from the ground up. Yeah. There are a lot of great books out there about what to do if you've got five investors putting in a half a million dollars a piece. Right. But if I got five investors putting in a half a million dollars a piece, I don't need a book. Right, right. I, I can figure it out from there pretty good. I'm talking to people who have a vision and don't have the provision. I'm talking to millennials who are tired of sitting on their mama's couch. Yeah. I'm talking to people who have bought into the myth that because you're 60-something, you're old. Wow. And you think your life is over because you got a retirement watch and yet you are productive and you're bright and you are literally aging and getting stiff because you don't move. Wow. 
And I am telling you that you can be fruitful in every season of your life. Yeah. I'm telling you that Harlan Sanders was on Social Security when he started KFC. Wow. That he was in his 60s when he started his business. That's amazing. And before you go out to the farm and start milking the cow and giving up on life, that there's still some value in yes. you. And there's still some things you can do with your life and your strength that you can still soar. Wow. How incredible was that episode right there? That content from Bishop Jakes. Oh my gosh. Just was so good. There's so much more to come in the next two episodes. Make sure that you listen to them and take some time to even process it with a friend, uh, maybe in a group setting, pulling together some people to just talk about what you heard today and how you're going to apply that in your own life, in your own business, your own ministry, in the way that you lead. Again, thank you for listening to Learning to Lead podcast. Please share this with your friends. Uh, talk to some people about getting this this podcast and subscribing to it. We love you so much. We're praying for you. The best is yet to come. God bless.